still part of Megara and the uses of argument. Uh, begin with a story from Diogenes Laertius. When Diodorus was in the company of Ptolemy Soter, some dialectical arguments were put to him by Stilpo. Because he could not solve them on the spot, he was scolded by the king, and in particular was teased by being called Old Codger, Kronos. He left the drinking party, wrote an essay on the problem, and in despair ended his life. Diodorus is not alone in being said to have died such a death. I've given you another example, Philetus of Kos, who wasted away puzzling over the paradox. There's a third example in Charles Sanders' purse, uh, when Scotus Erigena is commenting upon a poetical passage in which Hellebore, uh, a hemlock, is spoken of as having caused the death of Socrates, he does not hesitate to inform the inquiring reader that Helleborus and Socrates were two eminent Greek philosophers, and that the latter, having been overcome in argument by the former, took the matter to heart and died of it. Uh, okay, now, Perse is very, very scornful of this. What sort of idea of truth can a man have who can adapt and teach without a qualification of a perhaps an opinion so entirely random? But this passage, supposedly, in Scottish Erickson, that cannot be traced. Well, not by me, that doesn't mean much, but not by my Facebook friends either. Right? <laughs> and that this should be so, in spite of the sober notion of truth to which Perse here declares allegiance demonstrates how strong is the charm that philosophers find in stories of death by argument. Now this charm I find very easy to explain. I was weedy at school, I was useless at games, and worse than useless at fighting. But I did love and was rather good at verbal catches and quibbles, that's why I've made my profession. Right. Uh, so it's easy for me to daydream of a world in which catches and quibbles can be deadly. And in all these respects, I'm surely like most philosophers, I'm surely like most of you. Did you recognise yourself at school in the description I just gave of you? Okay, other adolescents, inadequates, dream of being like Superman. We dream of being like Stilpo. Right. That's the charm of these stories. <laughs> Yet, we shouldn't dismiss as total fabrication the story of Stilpo and the death of Diodorus, because there's at least good reason to believe in the setting of the story. I mean, good reason to believe that the appetite for competitive display that was manifested in stadia, in theatres, in law courts, across the Greek world, so many institutions generated for competitive display, that this appetite also led people to challenge one another with sophisms of parties, like the party of Ptolemy Sophia. Given your passage from, uh, from Aulus Elias, so what we used to do at the Saturnalia in Athens, we would uh, spend the time between bath, uh, uh, just before dinner time uh, with various tricks. We have various little fallacies. What snow is, hail is not, but snow is white, hail therefore is not white. He apologises, a bit's got lost in the translation there. Okay, and you had to uh, contribute a bit towards dinner if you couldn't solve this. Right, so you know, that's, that's, that's a context of competitive argumentation. Now, Ptolemy Soter's guests would have had much more at stake. It's who's going to get the patronage of a great potentate, not just who's going to pay what for dinner. But otherwise, I think the competition uh, between the guests would have been more or less like that described by Aulus. A competitor presents an argument that 
from more or less incontestably true premises, what snow is, hail is not, snow is white, reaches by a more or less incontestably valid argument, inference, reaches a more or less incontestably false conclusion. I mean, I choose that long-winded description okay, that people will sometimes call these fallacies, but the term fallacy suggests, at least in its etymology, an argument that deceives. Whereas these arguments, as Arcesilaus points out, uh, are like the tricks of a conjurer. Somebody doing the thimble-rigging trick, which, pleasing to know, seems to have been done in the ancient Mediterranean as it is on the streets of London now. You know, the little cups and the balls and the, the cups lifted up, there's a ball or there isn't, and you bet on it and, and, and whatever you bet, you're wrong. Okay, that, that, well, the conjurer appears to pull a rabbit from an empty hat, but the appearance, it doesn't actually deceive. We know very well that the conjurer cannot in fact do what he appears to be doing. Okay, and we need that mismatch between knowledge and appearance for the conjurer to be able to entertain. You know, if he didn't know he couldn't do it, it wouldn't be at all pleasing that he looks as if he's done it, right? Okay, so there's this, there's this style of argument, named or misnamed fallacy, <coughs> where, okay, doesn't deceive except it appears to go strange. Okay, how do you deal with a competitor when he presents such an argument? There are various ways to respond. I've given you some on the handout. First, you can simply wrong-foot your competitor by the device of accepting his conclusion. Thus, Theodorus is thought to have got the name God, right, God's gift, also known as God, when Stilpo put this argument to him. Is it not the case, Theodorus, that you are what you claim to be? He nodded. And you claim a god to be, he agreed. You therefore are a god, said Stilpo. And when Theodorus gave his conclusion a warm welcome, yeah, yeah, you're right, Stilpo, you said it. Stilpo said with a smile, you wretch, by this reasoning you'll agree that you're a jackal and thousands of other things. Okay, so what Stilpo had in mind was ugly little pet jackdaws. Right, jackdaws, I mean, like parrots, only not so pretty, but they thoughtlessly repeat your words back to you. That's what I've given you evidence for on the handout. Okay, so, so what, just wrong footing by accepting the conclusion, and then there was a standard cynic device for dealing with, 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 Rival's argument. Once, when Cratius the Cynic was not answering the question, by <coughs> farting, Stilpo said, I knew you'd make any noise in preference to the ones you should. Now, we even have evidence of cynics adopting a special diet so that they could <laughs> fart at will. Uh, I'm not experimenting with this, but there is, there is, there, there is a seed that, they, that is reported in the sources as being useful for this technique. Perhaps we should include this as part of the Southern Association. <laughs> think about it. You'll think about it. Okay. Okay, now these devices, Theodorus' device, Crates' device, these devices have their strengths. For one thing, they apply to all arguments impartially, whatever the argument, you can always treat it like this. And also, they don't leave much room for a comeback. Just think how lame Stilpo's responses to these are. Right. Uh, they leave little room for repartee. But these devices also have a crucial weakness, which, if you don't actually engage in the detail of your competitive's argument, you leave unchallenged his superiority as an arguer. At best, you contrive to insinuate that his superiority is not worth having, but you've done nothing to challenge the superiority itself. 
So this means that in a competitive context, the most forceful response is actually to pick apart your competitor's argument. Right? That's what Diodorus failed to do. Uh, that's what people in the context of all the Skelius were trying to do. Right. And picking apart your competitor's argument would be like dealing with a conjurer by showing how he worked his trick. You know, once you've alerted the spectators so that they can see the little gesture of the hand that puts the ball under the cup, you'll have spoiled the pleasure that your rival conjurer gives to them. You'll have shown yourself one up. Now, in the friendly sparring that Aulus describes, the arguments used are all fairly bland. They entertain and embarrass only logically. Not so with Stilpo's arguments. Many of his arguments are given a certain edge and raciness by their religious and sexual content. <coughs> We've seen one example already in the argument that got Theodorus to agree he was a god. Right, that's got a theological edge to it, but, but it adapts an argument that in Aristotle concluded, you therefore are a stone. Another example of this extra edginess is, is Stilpo's paradoxical conclusion that he wasn't discredited by the unchastity of his women folk. As one anecdote presents us in Snappy Repartee, he sired an unchaste daughter. She married an associate of his, Simeus of Syracuse. Since she did not leave as she should, live as she should, someone said to Stilpo that she brought shame upon him. He replied, no more than I bring honour on her. And there's another anecdote that sets out an argument in full. His daughter was unchaste, but not even this stopped Silpo living the merriest life of any philosopher of his generation. On the contrary, when Metrides, who figures in, in, in other uh, bits of badinage, including one that David Sedley edited from <coughs> Oxyrhynchus Papyri, uh, when Metrides taxed him, he said, is this my misdeed or hers? And when Metrides said, it's her misdeed, but your misfortune, he said, how do you mean? Are not misdeeds also faults? Very much so, he said. And are not faults also failings of those who are, of those of whom they are the faults? Metrically's agree. And are not failings also misfortunes of those whom they are failings? Stilpo here directs our attention away from the fact that even if misdeeds are misfortunes of those who commit them, they might still be the misfortunes of other people too, e.g. of their fathers. Stilpo actually works the trick so well, he actually deceives Plutarch. Who, who thinks that this argument is, uh, describes Silpo in this argument as showing by gentle and philosophical reasoning that the cynic's insult was just empty yapping. Now these anecdotes about the unchaste daughter and how Stilpo was invulnerable to this, I think may derive from an account in the Metricles or in the dialogue to his own daughter, and those works may be by Stilpo himself. Uh, this is all a bit dodgy evidence on which is particularly inscrutable, is on the handout. At any rate, but it's hard to avoid, even whether this was actually in Stilpo's own writings, it's hard to avoid suspecting that the unchaste daughter was a deliberate publicity stunt. Right? Aristippus the Socratic had a daughter, Arete, whom he educated so well in the Cyrenaic philosophy that she took over his school and in turn educated his grandson. Diodorus Cronus went for better 
There's something very appealing, actually, about girls in packs of five. And Catherine Osborne and I were trying to, to, to come up with these. There's, okay, there's the five Bennett sisters in Pride and Prejudice. There's, there's Fox Force Five in Quentin Tarantino's uh, Pulp Fiction. There's Girls Aloud, five of them. There's the Spice Girls. Right. I should explain for the benefit of the less worldly members of the Southern Association. <laughs> the Spice Girls are a popular singing group which included the Mrs. Beckham, whose footwear we discussed yesterday. <laughs> it's all one seamless web, the seamless web of learning and ancient philosophy, isn't it? Okay, so... so Diodorus had his five daughters. He out, you know, outdid Aristippus. Five daughters, all chaste, all trained dialecticians, all bringing credit on their father. Now, Stilpo could hardly outdo Diodorus in that respect. You know, once somebody's got five daughters like that, you know, well, he started a different competition. An unchaste daughter not bringing discredit. And that, I think, is a stroke of genius. There's an argument of Stilpo's about Athena that managed to combine both sexual and religious impropriety. They say that he once presented some such argument as this about the Athena that Phidias produced. Um, this is a slightly tricky one to translate. We've got genitive cases, um, so that's, that's how I'm doing the genitive case. Is the Athena that Zeus produced a god? When you got the Athelos. When he got the answer, yes, he said, but this one here was produced not by Zeus, but by Phidias. And when that was agreed, he said, this one is therefore not a god. He got summoned for this before the Areopagus, but did not deny the charge. He insisted, rather, he'd reasoned aright, and this was because she was not a god, but a goddess, and it's the males who were gods. Right, uh, so this, we're going to see other examples of this in this intellectual milieu one of the ways of, of wriggling out of things or competitive argumentation is with little logico-linguistic jokes like this, tidying up the fact that you've got in, in idiomatic attic the noun of thetos of common gender. It can be hair thetos as much as heart thetos, uh, but then playing around and, 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 and saying that you're going to have hair thetos. Okay, it didn't quite work. He was drummed out of town at once. Uh, so... So that's about Athena. But there's, above all, there was a genre of anecdote. Do two anecdotes count as a genre? One probably is, but two is enough for a genre, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, a genre of anecdotes where Stilpo engaged in smutty repartee with gods and goddesses. Now, important background here is the practice of incubation of sleeping in a temple and there communicating in one's dreams with the divinity whose temple it is. Um, I've given you an account of a dream communication, a typical incubation, um, at the temple of Asclepius. Uh, this, all right, Euphonies of, Epi, uh, of, Epi, uh, of Epidorus, a child. This is the standard way in which these things are, uh, are introduced. He was suffering from stone and went to sleep in the temple. He dreamt that the god stood over him and said, What will you give me if I heal you? His reply was, Dead knuckle bones. And there was a child's playing toys. And the god laughed and said he'd still this. And when the day came, Euphanes left the temple healthy. Now that record of Euphanes' dream is typical of many such. And it comes from an inscription besides, as you have guessed, the temple of Asclepius and Epidorus, 
which is 15 miles across the Saronic Gulf from Stilpo's Megara, and it's the second half of the 4th century BC. So it's more or less the time, more or less the place of, of Stilpo. Okay, so that's, that's the pattern. And compare with that pattern, Euphony's dream, a couple of dreams of Stilpo. Now, tales of both these dreams would obviously at least have purported to originate with first-person accounts from Stilpo himself, but we don't know anything more than this about their provenance. Right, here's the first dream. Stilpo was not impressed by self-control when he ate garlic and went to sleep in the temple of the mother of the gods. Nobody had eaten any such thing was permitted so much as to enter there. The goddess stood over him in his sleep and said, Are you a philosopher, Stilpo, and breaking the rules? He dreamt, he answered her in his sleep, You allow me to eat, and I won't consult garlic. To appreciate Stilpo's dream of the mother, we need to note that, uh, quote from Tertullian, when people mean to sleep at oracles, they're required to fast in order to keep them chaste. And there's similar statements I've given you on the handout for others. Okay, fasting to keep you chaste. We need to remember also that Stilpo's city maker was celebrated for its exports of garlic. References on the handout. Garlic was used as an aphrodisiac. And the aphrodisiac effects of Megarian garlic were supposed to be particularly strong. Right? I've, 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 I've just given you the references, so if you've got a dirty mind, you can go and chase it up. Otherwise, you just have to believe me. What Stilpo's doing is hinting in this bit of repartee, hinting to the mother of the gods that she's an erotic dream that he's brought on himself by garlic. Now, the second of Stilpo's dreams has him equally unimpressed by Poseidon. This is cited to illustrate how there can be a mental calm that persists even while one sleeps. Okay. Stilpo had a dream that went like this. Poseidon was angry with him for not sacrificing a bull, which was the customary offering, but he was not impressed. He said, what do you mean, Poseidon? Here you are, whinging like a child, uh, because I didn't go into debt to fill the city with the aroma of roast meat, but instead, from my own possessions, made you a modest sacrifice at home. And in his dream, Poseidon smiled. All right, remember how, uh, how that was so with uh, Euphanes, uh, the god smiles at him, offered his right hand and said he'd give the Megarians a glut of white bait, all because of Stilpo. My own possessions. What did Stilpo mean by my own possessions? Well, that's best explained by the most famous of all the anecdotes about him. I've... There are lots of versions, and I quoted in the earliest of, 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 of them. Uh, Demetrius, surnamed City Taker, right? You know, Stilpo moves in high circles, the successors of Alexander the Great, where it's told me so to Demetrius Polyorgates. Demetrius had captured Megara. Yes, Stilpo, the philosopher, whether he'd lost anything. Nothing, replied Stilpo. I have with me all that is mine. And yet his estate had been plundered, the enemy had raped his daughters, his country had fallen under alien rule, and he was being interrogated by a king on high, surrounded with the weapons of a victorious army. So if all that Stilpo ever possessed was what he couldn't lose even when Megara was sacked, the sacrifice that he made to Poseidon could only have been modest by most standards, right? even if big enough to please a god who's prepared to act like a grown up. So what are Stilpo's possessions? Well, we're going to see in the end there's an argument that there's nothing more to him than himself. Right? That's all. That's, okay. that's, that's going to be the climax of this talk. Right? Okay, all right, that's Stilpo's 
possession. Talk about the glut of white belt, the Poseidon promise. Well, that also needs some explanation. It's got a smutty double meaning. It's got gastronomic and sexual. Right. Megarian white bait had something of a reputation, evidence on the handout, so too had Megarian prostitutes. They were, you know, on a par with Corinthian prostitutes, so that means they're really high class. Well, various bits of evidence, but I think the most striking, actually, is, is Heraclides of Pontus. And in a slip, he describes the Milesian Aspasia as coming from Megara. Right, it's just so natural that, that the really great courtesan would be Megarian. That, well, given, given that her home city begins with a mew, that's enough for him to make the, this slip. <coughs> it's, it's this nexus of, of courtesans, badinage, and, and philosophers. Uh, so, Nicarity, no low-born courtesan, both her ancestry and her education made her attractive, and she attended the lectures of Stupo, the philosopher. So, uh, right. and some of them you know, were called Megaric Sphinxes, probably because they were good at riddles. Um, yeah, the kind of logical linguistic riddle that we've seen. Okay, so that's Megarian prostitutes, but prostitutes sometimes use the term for white bait, FOI, as a professional name to signal that supposedly that they were like white bait in that they had pale skins, slender bodies, and nice big eyes. So sisters Stagonion and Amphis were called Aphuai in the plural. But then, uh, then this is the, she's the curious one, a lady called Nicostratus, who gave herself the name Aphuai in the singular. Nicostratus uh, was making, I think, a, a little logico-linguistic joke worthy of a Megaric Sphinx. Um, Greek idiom, or at least Attic idiom, which is the best reported, made little or no use of the singular of Aphuai. Aphuai was in effect a mass term, mass noun, but masquerading as a plural count noun. Right. And it's in keeping with this idiom, uh, right, it's a mass term, that Stagonian and Amphis collectively took the name Aphuai. But when the says calls herself Aphuai in the singular, I mean, that's a bit like turning the plural Pyrenees into a singular Pyrenee. It's a bit like, again, the, the, the trick of Theos and Thea, uh, teasing us by, uh, say, filling in a little grammatical gap by twisting things in the unexpected way. So anyway, that's 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 white bait and gluts of white bait. But remember, the glut of white bait that Poseidon's promised in return for Stilpo's sacrifice isn't just fish. Right. There's much more to it than, than that. A, a glut of Africa. Now, scholars have difficulty believing that Stilpo was quite as smutty as I've been representing him. Um, I've given you an anecdote from Athenaeus about some badinage of Stilpo with, with Glycera, who's one of the most successful courtesans of the day. And each accuses the other of committing one of the offences for which Socrates was condemned to death. Okay, so this clever, learned courtesan, uh, Stilpo uh, made quick at repartee. Stilpo was once accusing Glycera at a drinking party of corrupting the young men. Glycera interrupted him to say, we incur the same accusation, Stilpo. They say that you corrupt those who come across you by teaching them useless and sexy so uh, sophisms. Uh, I know for their chirotica sophisms. 
And they say the same of me. When people are wasting their time and being maltreated, it makes no difference, they say, whether it's a philosopher with whom they're living or a courtesan. Okay, I quoted you as it's given in the codices. It's useless and erotica, erotic uh, sophisms. But Bergler wanted to replace uh, that erotica by eristica, uh, erotic by eristic, and, and all the editors, Keibel, Doring, Jan Antoni, uh, follow, they don't, they don't like the thought that, that still Keibel would be doing dirty syllogisms, uh, dirty sophisms. And, but because the replacement faces a difficulty. Why should Glissera say that she's accused of teaching eristic sophisms? Well, she is made to say that she teaches erotic sophisms. Why should she then say that this is the same as being accused of teaching eristic sophisms? I mean, it's just easier to leave the transmitted text alone and just take it as further testimony to the sexual impropriety of Stilpo's dialectic. Now, talk that's improper for any reason, whether sexual or religious or logical, let alone talk that's improper for all three reasons at once, is sufficiently pleasing to the naughty schoolboy in all of us to need no further explanation. Well, I mean, I don't think it needs any further explanation. Nevertheless, I will give further explanation or further excuse. Um, well, there seems to be something that, that's a bit more to still pose improper talk than this. I mean, there's a point to all this impropriety is it's fun, but it's not just fun. It displays himself as rising transcendent above it. And he displays himself as rising transcendent above this as part of a project of transcending all circumstances. It might be the sinking of his home, it might be the unchastity of his daughters, it might be the badinage of courtesans, it might be the reproof of divinities. Right. Rise above everything. We're told that Stilpo, the McGarrick philosopher, was a very clever man and highly thought of by his contemporaries. The man's own associates record that he was given to wine and women. And they record this not in criticism, but rather as praise. For they say he'd so tamed and suppressed his faulty nature by his learning that nobody ever saw him drunk and nobody ever saw in him any trace of lust. Now what Cicero among quoting their set about wine and women was, I suggest, applicable more widely. To Stilpo's mind, the first thing appropriate was freedom from disturbance. Now, of course, that's common currency. Many people, both in the philosophical schools and beyond, valued one form or other of freedom from disturbance. Uh, but the form valued by Stilpo was really quite distinctive and more demanding even than the form valued by the Stoics. Um, Here's a bit of Seneca, which I, I translate minus some remarks about the failure of the Latin word impatientia to convey the right idea. You wish, he's speaking to this idea, you wish to know whether Epicurus is right when somewhere in his letters, oh, I wish scholars these days were allowed to give references like that. But, uh, oh, that's great in the old days, wasn't it? It's somewhere in his letters, he reproves those who say that the sage is content with himself and therefore has no need of a friend. Epicurus makes this objection to Stilpo and to those whose judgment is that the supreme god, supreme good, that's a slip, is a mind that disdains feeling any evil, a mind that's invulnerable, or a mind that's beyond all suffering. It's this difference between us, i.e. Stoics, and them, i.e. McGarrett's. Our sage feels trouble but conquers it completely. Right, you remember 
uh, right, you know, Aeneas weeping in the in the in the Aeneid, but then just going on. Right, feels it but conquers it. But their sage does not even feel it. What we and they have in common is that the sage is content with himself. Now consider in this light as techniques for transcending circumstance still pose reasons <coughs> about bereavement and exile. We can encounter these things without being troubled by them, so long as we act on this reasoning, her bereavement. Um, it's not quite clear where exactly the boundaries of, of Stilpo are and where is, where is the glosses from the, from the quota, but uh, this, this is, at least a lot of it is Stilpo. Right. How is it not irrational, generally pointless, to sit there when a friend has died weeping and grieving and adding one's own death to that of a friend? Always, when in order to enhance one's reputation among the unstricken as a philosopher, one should do one's grieving and weeping before the death of the friend, reflecting that one's friend was born human and mortal. Right? You knew he was going to die. So, all right. For Stoppo says, one's not thinking straight if one neglects the living for the dead. A farmer doesn't act like this. If one of his trees is withered, he does not root up the others too, but instead, by taking care of the rest, attempts to make up for the one that was lost. Don't we act like this when it comes to our own bodily parts? For it'd be absurd if someone who loses one eye should need to root out the other, or if someone who's one deformed leg should need to cripple the other, or if someone who's lost a tooth should need to pull the rest out too. Can it be that if it, when it comes to those things only a fool would think that way? Yet it's nevertheless reasonable when one's son or wife has died to treat oneself as unimportant, alive though one is, and on top of that destroy what one still has. If it was one of your friends whose son or wife had died, uh, you'd encourage him because you'd think he should take it like a man and valiantly and lightly. Yet when the same thing happens to you, you think you should take it so badly. That's bereavement. Or again, the argument about exile. Presumably when someone thinks that the effect of exile is that we're less rational, then we're likely counter with a case of skills. But just as piping and acting are no harder or, or no harder abroad, presumably this is confirmed by travelling players, travelling pipers, so too deliberation is no harder either. And if someone considers that exile is harmful for some other reason, uh, then one can hardly object to the remark of Stilpo's that I mentioned just now. What, he says, is exile? What kinds or sorts of goods does it deprive us? Of goods of the soul, of goods of the body, or of goods that are external to both soul and body? Does exile deprive us of good reasoning, of acting rightly, of acting well? Certainly not. Oh, but maybe it deprives us of manliness or justice or some other virtue. Not that either. But maybe it deprives us of some goods of the body. Well, is it not possible when abroad to be just as healthy and strong and sharp of sight and hearing as when staying at home, sometimes more so? Oh, absolutely. Well, maybe it deprives us of externals. Well, has it not been observed that people's fortunes are burgeoned through the accrual of such things, external goods, after they've gone into exile? Example after example after example. Of what goods then does exile deprive us? Of what, of what evil does it help to bring about? As far as I'm concerned, I can't see any. This reasoning, not least in its threefold classification of goods, right, goods of the mind, goods of the body, external goods, is, of course, in many ways, very, very Socratic. But it's going to make us much more detached from our surroundings than even Socrates. 
Remember, Socrates in Plato's Symposium shows to be unaffected by wine, unaffected by Alcibiades, unaffected by snow. Now, there's not much that can affect Socrates in some ways. He is a bit like Alcibiades in his immunities of circumstance. But even so, remember, Socrates has attachments so attached to Athens that he wouldn't go into exile even when the alternative was Henry. Right, so Stilpo is more detached even than Socrates. And I think this is, this is obviously a characteristic move in lots of post-Socratic, minor Socratic philosophy, trying to show yourself a worthy heir of, or even, uh, 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 or even uh, uh, a rival of Socrates. Diogenes, Socrates gone mad. Right, Stilpo, Socrates getting even more detached from circumstances. Now there's obviously a lot that's shrewd and sane and genuinely consolatory in this reasoning about bereavement and exile. But it also contains a much more contentious ingredient. And this ingredient occurs in, well, there's three thoughts where I think it occurs particularly. First, Remember, if a death is certain to occur, then you've no more reason to bewail that death once it has occurred than you have at any other time. Or again, if you're right to tell, if you're right to tell a bereaved friend to bear his bereavement bravely, then you're equally right to tell yourself to bear your own bereavement equally bravely. Or third, uh, if exile allows you external goods so that you are sleeping in a comfortable bed and you are dining off silver, then that's just as good as sleeping in your own bed and dining off the family's silver. Now, each of those thoughts applies or, or misapplies what one might grandly call the principle that reasons extrapolate, or source for the goose is source for the gander. Right, if it's a reason that to mourn in that, uh, that he's just died, then it's a reason to mourn anyone at any time that they die at some time. Okay. Now, Hipparchia, the cynic, has this principle of extrapolating reasons in this marvellous argument she addressed to Theodorus. If Theodorus could not be said to commit an injustice in doing a thing, then Hipparchia too could not be said to commit an injustice in doing that thing. But Theodorus commits no injustice in hitting himself, and he agrees to that. Hipparchia too, therefore, commits no injustice in hitting Theodorus, so she, so she thumps him one. It would have been comparatively uncontentious to extrapolate from it's not unjust for Theodorus to hit Theodorus to it's not unjust for Hipparchia to hit Hipparchia. And more generally, to whoever you are, whether male or female, it's not unjust for you to hit yourself. I think the brilliance of Hipparchia is that she extrapolates unexpectedly. Right. But unexpectedly, but it's in a way that doesn't allow for ready rebuttal. You know, take, take the, the extrapolation, a farmer shouldn't mourn the loss of a tree, so you should not mourn the loss of a friend. Well, you can, you can really deal with that simply by denying outright that owning trees is in the relevant respect like having friends. But you can't deny, you can't easily deny that what Hipparchia does when she hits Theodorus is like, indeed, is absolutely identical what Theodorus does when he hits himself. Because what each of them does is hits Theodorus. Um, it's, it's a one level, it's quite unanswerable. Okay, so it's, it's this play with where you can generalize a reason uh, that is, that is uh, important in these arguments of Stilpo. All right. It is not irrational to lament now this recent bereavement. Well, that could generalise 
comparatively standardly or uncontentiously to it's not irrational at any time, whether past, present or future, to lament a bereavement which at that time is recent. But still Poe, in effect, has us generalised to it's not irrational at any time, whether past, present or future, to regret a bereavement which at any time, whether past, present or future, is recent. Uh, it's, a, it's a special twist in the generalisation he then has us notice the absurdity of that generalisation. Okay, it is absurd at the birth of a child to lament its eventual death. You know, you certain know the eventual death is. Um, Stilko then has us infer the absurdity of the thought from which that generalisation is generalised. Well, likewise, you know, it's all right for me to tell you in your position uh, that you need not fuss. Okay, that could easily and obviously generalise, extrapolate to, if anyone's in your position, then it's all right for others to tell them they need not fuss. Well, what Stilpo's doing is, is making it to the slightly uh, unexpected uh, generalisation. It's all right for someone in your position to say of themselves that they need not fuss. Now this... Okay, it seems to make a difference. You, know, you, you, you tread on my toe, you then apologise, and I say not to worry, okay? Uh, all as well. But suppose, well, not all is well if you tread on my toe and say you're not worried. <laughs> right, you know, you instantly <laughs> believe, but without my telling you what I told you, there's something, there seems to be something on. Right, okay, or again, take the way what's still per... Right, the fact that I'm in the comfort of my own home is a reason for me to be glad. Now, it's one thing to infer, as we naturally would, that anyone has the same reason to be glad if they are in the comfort of their own home. That's what we'd already do. It's another thing to infer that I have the same reason to be glad if I am in the comfort of a home, whether mine or someone else's, and therefore that exile need not deprive me of external goods. So, so that's, that's, that's the trick that's going on, this, this unexpected, twisty generalisation, both in Stilpo and in Hipparchia. Now, there's a difference, I think, that Hipparchia, although, although it's hard to say exactly what's gone wrong and why, there seems it's evident that something's gone wrong. So her reasoning might delight, but it's not going to persuade. But Stilpo's is, I think, slightly different. Okay, there's something slightly odd about these generalizations, about his extrapolations, but it's very hard to say that there's something formally wrong with them which does not, which distinguishes them from the standard ways of generalizing reasons. There seem to be formal grounds on which one can object that the standard generalizations of, of reasons are logically required while still pose are logically forbidden. So his reasoning actually can be effective, rationally effective on us. It can nudge us, I think, in some way towards being as indifferent to deaths in the recent past as we are to deaths in the remote future. It can nudge us to some kind of indifference. Okay, let's turn finally to look at the only arguments of Stilpo we've yet to consider. This is, this is a batch of arguments about predication that take us back to the sophisms with which Aulus Gellius and his friends used to compete. Uh, 
have given you a pair of arguments that no general term can apply to a particular. One of them because no general term can apply to anything at all, and the other because a general term will apply to something general. So, right, uh, they obviously something. Uh, uh, you can't believe both of those, but that's, that's still the same conclusion. All right. No general term can apply to a particular. He used to say that if someone says a man, he's talking of nobody. He's not talking of this one, nor of that one. For why should it be this rather than that? An Umaran argument of the sort that Steve Makin has written very illuminatingly about. Um, therefore, he's not talking EV than this one. I thought I'd give you a plug, Steve. Oh, well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Great book, right. <laughs> Everybody read it. Uh, uh, and again, all right. Okay, that's it's general terms don't apply to anything, and then general terms apply to general things. Cabbage isn't what I'm pointing to, for cabbage existed thousands of years ago. This, therefore, when he points to the stuff on his plate, is not cabbage. Okay, so there's this argument that Lampax allowing predications if they're tautologous, horses are horses, forbids them if they're not tautologous, like horses run. If we predicate running of a horse, then, says he, Stilpo, what's predicated is not the same as that of which it's predicated, but different. Uh, they've got to fill in a little bit, but pause and Nor is this so if we predicate being good of a man. But there's one definition of what it is to be a man, and another of what it is to be good. Right. And again, being a horse differs, he says, from being running. For when we're asked for the definition of either, we do not give the same definition of both. Okay, in consequence, people who predicate one thing of another are in error. You can't predicate one thing of another. All we can do is say still po is still po, or generalise what is is one, that one thing is not another thing, and nothing's ever brought into existence or destroyed or in any way changed. Now Plutarch, and this is the final passage on my handout, upgrades Colotes for not appreciating that in these arguments of his, Stilpo was merely teasing. I want to suggest, finally, that bizarre though these arguments against predication are, bizarre though they are, I think Stilpo was wrong. Of course, I beg pardon, Plutarch was wrong. Of course, Stilpo did not really believe that all predication is either tautologous <coughs> or false. But that would not stop its being his philosophical doctrine. And it wouldn't stop him giving his philosophical endorsement to his arguments for it. Uh, I mean, this is a general problem with philosophy, actually. I used to think the great problem with philosophy was philosophical insincerity. You know, people would say, well, oh, you know, I don't know, I'm not a poached egg, or, or, or what have you. Or, 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 for all we know, some contradictions are true. Or, or you know, there, there aren't any minds or something. All right. So, uh, oh, okay. uh, where you want to say, come off it. Now, I think what, it, it's, it's this odd state of philosophers, and aniatic monists, hard determinists, eliminative materialists, paraconsistentists, they all say bonkers things, but they're not just saying it. It's not that they're acting on it either, but it's as genuine as a philosophical belief can be. And I think that it's, it's in that sort of spirit that we've got to interpret um, these logico-linguistic manoeuvres about predication. Of course he can't, he can't really believe it, but that doesn't mean just that it's a tease. Uh, I think these doctrines about predication 
are actually helping Stilpo to maintain the calm and detachment for which he was celebrated. What do I have to hope or fear from circumstances? If whatever's going to happen, the full, the complete, the unshakable truth about me is just that I am me. The only way that anything could ever get at me would by changing some what is truly predicable of me. So if nothing ever is truly predicable of me, you know, denier's denier and that's it, nothing can ever get at me. Yeah. So whatever, uh, whatever the invader does when he sacks my city, I'll still have all, I'll still be all, I'll still have all that I ever had, I'll still be all that I ever was. Okay. And then anything that I can do to persuade myself of this, uh, is going to be of assistance in helping me to maintain my superiority over circumstances. And that's actually going to help me outdo my rivals. And if reasoning is going to help me achieve this result, then reasoning is going to be worthwhile after all. Okay, thanks for your patience.